Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Forrest Landry. Forrest is a thinker, writer, and philosopher. And this is the sixth time he's been on our show. One of my very favorite guests. We've had some awesome conversations. Most recently in EP 134, where we talked about his non-relative ethics. Also, Forrest used to be a smart man and didn't partake of social media much, but he's now got a presence on social media and you can find him at at Forrest Landry. That's Forrest with two R's, 19 on Twitter. Welcome, Forrest. Good to be here. Thank you. Delighted to uh, speak with you yet again. Yeah, this is going to be a really good conversation, I think. We're actually going to go back to the very first thing that I read of Forrest's, which is his small group practice, I think he called it at the time. And, you know, I don't think I read that in 2015, and we uh, chatted about it a little bit. And this gives me an opportunity to go back and reread it, which I did. Still found it awesome and to get into it in detail with you. So I'm really looking forward to that. Awesome. Great. So you want me to just basically describe the overall concepts or how, how would you like to begin? Yeah, let me ask you, just ask you some questions to bring things okay. forward. First, for the audience, is to understand that this is a literally small group practice designed for, at least in your thinking in 2015, to be optimal for groups up to 16 or so, and maybe with some stretch and with some good people, something above that. Is that still the, the range that you're thinking about for the basic small group practice? Yes, it is. There's some very definite things that limit the scale. And and so as a result, there's the, the notion behind that piece essentially was to demonstrate some of the underlying concepts. So for instance, when we look at governance models and small group process and things, we, we notice some, some particular dynamics about how groups work. And so in effect, that was essentially an exploration about how to think about governance process in a broader way. But in, in, in the sense of the practice of it, you know, what kinds of things would work or not work at that scale became uh, quite, quite clarifying for a number of these other ideas. Yeah. And then uh, we'll get to later in the conversation. Forrest also has some ideas on multi-level extensions of the basic concept that, at least in theory, allows one to address much larger collectives. But before we jump into the details... Why is this important? The world's full of groups that work to a greater or lesser degree. So why is it important for you to spend your precious time coming up with a new theory on how groups should operate? The main reason that this is, I think, particularly important is that the kinds of problems that are facing the world today are the kinds of problems that the existing processes just don't work for. So large-scale, complex problems spanning multiple generations and multiple cultures or societies that have uh, large numbers of actors and that operate in particularly complex domains, such as ecosystems and things like that. So, for example, if we want to solve those kinds of problems, the question can be asked, uh, are the current institutional forms capable of addressing that class of problem? Uh, Things like uh, ecological issues or global warming or pollution or the kinds of uh, sustainability things that we would think in terms of uh, large-scale economic process and stuff like that. 
So when we when we actually look at the complexity of those problems and the level of human coordination that is genuinely needed on some sort of absolute scale to address these, we notice that we essentially need a whole level of capacity that currently is not yet uh, implemented or available, but is actually genuinely required to solve those kinds of problems. Things in X risk and, and stuff of that nature is uh, another uh, situation that is highly motivating for us to come up with really, really good sense-making and human coordination processes. And pretty much anything that you would look at in the world today that's important is going to need this sort of capacity. So developing that capacity to me seems to be a critical path for our well-being, uh, both presently and in the future. Yeah, you also made a very good point, which is one I actually run into myself in my business career, which is attempting to do new things in an old structure is often a prescription for failure right? For instance, when I did my startup companies, when I had whole new products and whole new areas to go after, I actually started whole new organizations from scratch, sometimes with quite different design parameters than the home company. And it turned out to have been the right decision. I was like 28 years old when I invented this idea. and Maybe it was stupid, but it worked. And I convinced myself subsequently that attempting to do new and innovative things in the old structure is generally a bad idea because the structure was designed for some purpose, emerged and became self-designed for some purpose at its best and may not be right for other purposes. So, you know, there's a lot to be said for thinking about these things fresh. So from your thinking, you basically came up with three classes of making decisions democracy, meritocracy, or you sometimes call it executive. What would you rather call it, executive or meritocracy? I think meritocracy in this sense is fine, but it's the idea is any kind of hierarchically organized structure, any, anything where you have kind of inequality as, as part of the metric of how the governance works. And consensus being the third. And you some of the very best writing I've seen on the, the strengths and the weaknesses of this, these three classes of how one can operate. So let's start out by uh, giving your descriptions of, let's do it in the order, consensus, meritocracy, and democracy, what they are and what their strengths and weaknesses are. Great. Well, actually, just in part of that, why these three is, is also kind of a thing. So for instance, one, one of the claims that's being made is that these three are essentially spanning the, the, the archetypes of the total space of how to think about human process or human governance or the ways in which we coordinate our choices with one another. So in the sense that you could think about consensus as everybody is at the same level where we're all speaking to one another as peers. And in effect, that's a, that's a kind of horizontal communication process. And meritocracy, or, or in this case, hierarchical structures, essentially would be a kind of unequal way of relating. And when we're thinking about democracy, we essentially see something that's halfway between these two extremes, i.e. things that, that might be subgroups where interior to the group, you have some sort of equality. And in the relationship between the two subgroups, you might have some sort of uh, hierarchical structure or some sort of inequality. So in effect, if we, if we take these notions of equality and inequality and the various ways of partitioning that, then you end up with essentially these three underlying concepts. Consensus would be a model where People communicate and to a degree, they, they come to essentially a common understanding of the problem and a common way of thinking about how to solve it. And so in effect, there's a, a uniform agreement, whereas meritocracy might be thought of as a, a conventional sort of top-down structure where you have a, a single person that gets elected to be the representative or the leader, and they might have you know, some other people that they have implement you know, various roles and, and, and staff that do specific functions. 
and that everybody's coordinating with respect to however that process of, of who gets to decide what about when. So rather than having everybody deciding everything together, you have essentially one person allocated per choice. Yeah, and so a classic example is a you know, for-profit corporation where there's a CEO, and in theory, the CEO has total power, but he delegates it and creates a hierarchy underneath them, essentially. Exactly. So essentially, the idea is, is that uh, the total span of choices is spread out across the people in a kind of role-specific way, right? So who gets to make what choices about when is kind of defined by some sort of bylaws or rule schema or just delegated, as you said, from, from the CEO. Whereas in the consensus process, essentially everybody's involved in every choice. And so in effect, there's a kind of ongoing conversation. And then when we're looking at democratic process, what we're basically seeing is a kind of uh, reification of what the choices are and some sort of debate followed by a, a vote of some sort or another where you end up with with people basically making choices in a distributed way, but about a very much smaller, simpler set of choices. So so in this sense, you know, we're we're looking at these things as having sort of archetypal qualities for the space of governance, but they each have advantages and disadvantages. So for instance, when we when we look at uh, consensus, it makes very high quality choices, but the bandwidth that's required communicatively is very large. And if the group gets too big, it might not be the case that there's enough time to actually arrive at any decision for any given choice. And there just might be just too many choices being ne- needed to be made too quickly for a consensus group to arrive at consensus. When you're looking at meritocratic systems, the main advantage there is, is that it can respond very quickly to a fairly large number of choices. It's, it's relatively simple and it's pretty robust for dealing with kind of emergency situations. But it's actually quite vulnerable to the kinds of things we would call corruption, i.e. issues where people aren't making choices on the behalf of the group, but they're actually making it for private interests or, or small, what I would call first circle concerns, i.e. oneself, one's family, one's friends, and things like that. Yeah, in the economic literature, it's often called agency risk, right? You In a company, the board of directors hires the CEO, in theory, to represent the interests of the shareholders. But guess what? The CEO is really at least as interested in his own bonus and stock options. And when he hires a VP of sales, the VP of sales is probably more interested in his commission and his fancy Lexus than he is in the health of the company, et cetera. So classic, well-known economic problem called agency risk when you start going to hire hierarchical organizations. Yeah, I refer to it as the principal agent problem, which also has a long literature associated same with it. It's, it's, it's it's same thing. Thing. Exactly. That's a different name for the same thing. Principal agency problem, agency risk problems. It's exactly the same thing. And so um, just to complete out the thing with uh, different governance types, the democracy would seem to be, in one sense, you know, a better alternative than, say, consensus or meritocracy, the way I've described them. But it also has some, some very specific weaknesses. For one thing, there's a lot of hidden and covert forms of power associated with the democratic process, i.e. how those choices get, uh, you know, what, what ends up being on the ballot or not on the ballot or who gets to decide the wording and things like that. But also that insofar as we would think of the strength of a group or its capacity as being defined in terms of its coherency, its ability to operate as one together, then in effect, voting becomes the most efficient way to divide a group into two equally sized subgroups, essentially to limit the effectiveness of that community or that group of people by dividing them into two subgroups that are each less effective than the whole group would be as a whole. So in that sense of divide and conquer, it's unfortunate, but but the idea of democracy ends up making for very weak groups, uh, political polarization and things like that being a phenomenon that, that can quite easily happen 
And as a result, the community ends up being less resilient to external change for a variety of reasons, not just the sense making and the choice making, but, but, but also on a bandwidth and corruption level, because it hasn't in itself fundamentally addressed the issues associated with uh, either meritocracy or consensus. Yeah, and this is really important. So a few more things about the problems of democracy. As Americans and as Westerners, about half our audience are not Americans, but spread around the, the Western world, we think of democracy as, whoa, that's a good thing, right? It's a gold star. But you actually dig into a number of quite important problems with the fundamental mechanism of democracy, uh, it might be worthwhile to go into some of these in more details, particularly interested in the fact that because of the institutional structure of democracy, it serves as a corrupting force on how ideas are discussed, framed, and how rhetoric is done. I think it's hugely important. I'd love to hear you go in, into that in some detail. Well, actually, I, I think you, you you mentioned kind of the essential of it already is, is that the the, the, the notion of it coming from an institutional form or being an institutional form is actually a big part of it is, is that the, 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 the notion of an institution implies a kind of hierarchical structure is basically being built into it. And the notion of democracy also has this kind of representational model, i.e. You, you set up a, a person to act in a particular executive role or you end up with this co- Congress, for example, that that becomes the agent operating on behalf of the principal, i.e. the rest of, of the community or the or the citizens. And so, you know, not only is it is it very susceptible to covert forms of, you know, the kind of corruption that we were mentioning earlier. I mean, it, in, in some respect, we would rather have the corruption be obvious and therefore you can counteract it to some extent rather than occult and therefore not be able to see all of the places. Uh, obviously, conspiracy theories and things like that can tend to be uh, how people sort of try to, to model this in their own minds. But there are actually a, a number of issues about how corruption can kind of sneak in. And so in effect, there's, you know, both the divisiveness that occurs as a result of the mechanism itself and therefore losses associated with strength, but also that the kinds of ways in which things go wrong effectively are not easy to identify from the outside. You have to kind of see it from the inside. You know, there's, there's a whole dynamic called the rules for rulers. If there's a, you know, an interest in people to sort of look at this, there's a, there's a video online that's called The Rules for Rulers, and it, at first it talks about the kinds of things we would see as being corruption issues associated with any kind of leadership model or any kind of governance model, well, hierarchical in any form. And then it spends the latter half talking about how these same things show up in democratic forms. But, but all of this is to just say that, that, that all three modes, like switching from democracy to consensus doesn't necessarily solve the problem, or switching to some other form of, of meritocratic system doesn't solve the problems. Essentially, for us to really come to grips with how do we do better, like can we, can we actually solve the problems? Can we compensate for the weaknesses of each of these three uh, archetypal models and actually come up with something better? And in, in this particular sense, it turns out the answer to that question is yes. And this is actually very surprising because the three models of governance have been around for uh, a really long time. I think the, the newcomer in that situation would be consensus. Although if you look at tribal dynamics, there's, there's versions of it going back a, a long ways as well. So there's really no point in history where we can kind of see, you know, where does that form uh, ultimately emerge? So then the next most recent candidate might be democracy. But even then, it could be described that there were early forms of that in other situations. But Regardless of this, these are all well-explored territories, both philosophically and socially. The history of human civilization is repeat with, with all sorts of examples of people trying all sorts of different variations of these techniques. 
So to do original work in this space and basically to propose something new is, 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 is actually somewhat surprising just in itself. So one of the things the essay does is it, is it, is it uses this phenomenon called axiom two, which comes from a deeper substrate of, of a, you know, you mentioned the non-relativistic ethics, but there's a, there's a deeper theory of the metaphysics underneath that. And it shows us that if we, if we basically take the three archetypal forms and we convolve them, there's a kind of rotation that can be done. That we can essentially do all three of them, but we use each essentially as a check and balance against the other two. So, for example, the, the main problem that, that we're sort of compensating for in all of these cases is that if, if we're looking at sort of human evolution and the ways in which we've essentially arrived at on, on the planet as a species, there's this very strong propensity for inequality to, to result, inequality in choice forms and so on and so forth. Like it's, it's, it's a sort of biological drive for us to essentially look to one another and kind of find the most skilled person for a particular way of thinking about things and then follow their leadership. So this is a very deeply built-in tendency. And to, to essentially have the group as a whole act in a wiser way or be more responsive to choices that are, that are needing to be made well it, it, to some extent, requires a certain amount of, of, of just actual study and, and, and actual care around how that practice is actually held. So the small group essay is essentially a description of how to, how to do that in small groups, essentially to, to sort of partition the group into uh, that which is internal to the group and that which is external to the group. So you kind of create a sort of artificial boundary. And then you basically say things that are going on inside of that group you want to use consensus and coherency as a way of essentially describing that internal process. But to do that, you have to trade off the fact that that group is essentially not going to be doing any kind of signal receiving or transmission across the boundary. So in other words, if you're in the process of consensus, you're looking at internal stuff, you're focused inward, and you're not having anything to do with the outside world. So in effect, there's a, a sort of bimodal process here. We're looking at you know, either the group is in the mode of working internally or it's in the mode of working externally. And you treat these two as essentially distinct processes. And then you can basically set it up so that the internal process is managed by consensus and the external process is managed by a kind of role definition, which allows for coordination of that group to external actions. So maybe, you know, as, as good governance would be to protect the land and the people, that, that, it, that it might actually have some agency with respect to the land. So in this sense, the dynamic of how these transitions occur, how it goes from a consensus process to a meritocratic process, and then from a meritocratic process back to a consensus process is, is part of the way in which these three uh, archetypal uh, governance dynamics are essentially uh, used as checks and balances against one another. And that's, that's part of what that essay is essentially addressing. Yeah, let's use a little small scale example here so we can uh, be a little bit clearer about internal and external. When I reread it, I realized, hmm, I have to think about this a little bit. So let's imagine 16 people living on a small farm that, they're, that they are living in collectively and farming and maybe doing some other economic activity in together as a collective. So something like farming, even though it's done on the property of the collective would still be an external action, I believe, in your, right. in your nomenclature. So an internal action is really about the, the processes of the group. Well, it would be things like membership, right? Do we add another person or for some reason or other, does a person need to leave? Maybe they're moving away. Maybe there's some, you know, what might be called irre irreconcilable personality differences, although that's maybe less likely. There's a whole bunch of things where, you know, there's how does the group think of itself as a group? What kind of identity does it feel that it has or what are its feelings and values? So, for instance, when we're 
when we're looking at it, we're not trying to talk about, you know, how does that group show up in the world as an identity so much as we're looking at, is the group conscious of its own basis? Does it, does it know where it's come from is when it's making choices? So in the same sort of way that, that as an individual, you might be asked, well, do you want to do X or Y? If that choice happens to have something to do with your children and you love your children, then your basis of choice is going to come from what's best for my child. And so in that sense, the group itself is going to want to have, you know, what are the values, what are the underlying meaningfulness of, of, of the group itself that effectively helps us to guide our way when we're thinking about what purpose does the group have or what function might it have in the world. But it's the basis of choice for, the, for sure wanting to have coherency about, in that sense, we're talking about consensus. And, and as another example, you know, some groups may choose to have explicitly stated value norms or virtues, and presumably those would be crafted via consensus so that everybody agrees. Yeah. And then the interesting point about that, actually that we're thinking out loud here, is that if that were done democratically, there would be inevitably losers on each vote. And so there would be some people who did not sign on to say the seven Aristotelian virtues or something, right? But if it's done by consensus, then we can say that everybody in the community agrees with our set of virtues and norms, just as, as, as an example of where consensus produces actually a fundamentally different outcome than, let's say, democracy might. That's, that's right. So, for instance, when we're looking at the relationship between value, purpose, and meaning, that the, the values aren't mutually exclusive the same way the purposes might be. Like, usually in any given moment, I can only say one thing or do one particular action, and I kind of have a fundamental sequentiality there. But values are the kind of things which have a sort of parallelism associated with them. It's, there's no real reason for us to basically say, I can only have values A, B, and C, and I can't have values D, E, and F. And part of the underlying notion here is, is that values are positively stated, basically uh, in the same way that I might say, everything that is not an elephant doesn't tell me anything about what it actually is. It just tells me that it's not an elephant. But if the universe is infinite, then I've really said nothing. So in effect, there's a there's a notion here that when we're talking about values, we want to specify what we care about. And that's a positive statement. And there's no mutual exclusiveness in saying, well, I care about this and I care about that and I care about this other thing. So when we're thinking about consensus, it's not so much that it's 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 about coming up with a finite list so much as it is about coming up with the kinds of what are the things that are the drivers as our basis of choice so that when we do move into some sort of purpose-driven uh, way of being, i.e. external organizations and things like that, that that's grounded in some sort of thing that we can relate to consciously rather than just unconsciously. Very good. That's a nice distinction and clarification. But of course, let's say we have our 16 people, it would be uh, really uh, kind of probably a waste of time, the wrong set of expertise, and I don't even know how you do it, to, for instance, figure out how you're going to lay out the cornfield, right, on the farm. So how do you go from those things which are inwardly focused that are appropriate for consensus and where high co coherence is of the essence to things where action and decisions on a more quick and, frankly, in some sense, less consequential, often, though not always, basis. How do you go from consensus to the next step? Well, this is, this is actually very straightforward. So, for instance, if we're looking at surveying the land for you know, laying out where the crops are going to go, for example, then there is a kind of inequality in terms of the distribution of that skill among the people in the group. But people in the group are going to know that, right? So, for instance, in a sense, the consensus might be, yes, for this task, this person is going to be essentially the chief organizer for that role or that function. And, and the notion is, is that 
you know, the group is, is, is making a choice about both who has the skills, who is willing, and who is available, and hopefully that's the same person. If it's not, then to some extent there's wanting to be a, a bunch of conversation as to how to create that person within the group. So in effect, there's a, there's a notion here that the consensus process is effectively uh, not so much electing a leader by a vote, but electing a leader by consensus for that particular task. And so in effect, you know, this is a, is, a, is a specific case of the much more general problem of communication, right? So for instance, if we're looking at communication that is within the group versus communication that's crossing the outside of the group, i.e. Uh, the surveyor is communicating with the land using surveying instruments, essentially. And so in, in this sense, he's receiving signals from the land about where to put uh, various things and, 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 and using that expertise to read signs and to know, well, this crop's going to grow better here because it's closer to the river or something like that. So in effect, what's, what's happening is, is that as we are, are, are in the, the consensus process, we're essentially deciding what is the scope of communication that a given person is essentially going to be responsible for on the behalf of the group or is going to be representing the values of the group in its communication with the land. And so in that sense, again, the, the, the motion from completely flat non-hierarchical organization to some hierarchical organization is selected by the consensus process. Does every person in the group feel good about the, the proposed structure of how the group is going to communicate with the outside world in some focused and, and, and meritocratic sort of way? Because uh, obviously the group wants to be effective with respect to the world. So it, it needs some sort of response to do that. Yes. As I read it, I'd love to get your clarification if I'm off on this. Uh, there's probably two parts of such a decision. One is what is the scope of the authority of the meritocracy? And then part two is who is the person? Is that approximately correct? Because I can see those both being important decisions and both ones that could be made by consensus in a group of, say, 15 or 16 people. That's right, because it's describing the internal organization. So for instance, the who gets to decide and what the scope of that communication is are, are interior to the group. So in other words, it's, it's how does the group self-organize into organs, you know, organs representing functions or systems that, that the group then uses. It's sort of like an amoeba decides, okay, well, in order to do this thing, I need a heart and therefore I'm going to need some lungs. I'm going to need some muscles and a bone structure in this place and these places in order to be able to create the appendage to do the thing. Um, but that's because it's an interior organization to perform an outside function. It is a, it is very much a consensus-oriented process. But once that feeling of we know what we're tr what we're doing, like what is the scope of action, and what are the tools and resources that are being created in order to engage in that scope of action, then there's there's this transition that basically just says, "Yep, we're good to go. Everybody agrees," and then it happens. So so in that sense, for the duration of the process by which the the scope of choices is being implemented and the, and, and, and the outside flow and communication is essentially being coordinated via the, you know, that person may be elected, but he might say, well, you know, I'll need someone to hold the, the other end of the transit so that I can see where the, where the reflection is. I'll need another person to basically draw these lines and I'll need another person to dig holes to put these markers in. And, and so in effect, there might be a series of delegations that that person makes in the context of the group, but it's, it's scope limited. If it turns out that over the course of, like, say, the next week or so in which that person is doing that particular function and the delegations are going on, that the group starts to feel that there is some misrepresentation, that there was some mistake regarding 
the scope of concern or the particular process or something's going wrong in terms of, of whether or not that feels like it's actually representing the interests of the group. Then we would have what is in the literature called a vote of no confidence, which is essentially a kind of fallback process that transitions the group from a meritocratic process, which is very good at making choices in response to the outside world and coordinating focus of communication, to an inward focus process of, okay, we need to figure out how we're going to do this differently. And so in a sense, there's a there's a role-based meritocratic process rather than, say, a period of time-based meritocratic process. This is uh, currently the case in, in you know, democracy like the United States, to a, a situation where you're essentially using the vote for one purpose and one purpose only, which is just to make the transition from meritocratic back to consensus. If you try to use the voting process for more than that, then essentially you, you end up with the disadvantages of the voting process creeping back in and causing all sorts of issues. And I think this is actually the most brilliant part of your design. And when I read it, I remember I, uh, I fed it back to you in rut speak. I said, said democracy's only function is it's the red button. It has one thing. It can press the red button. And to make it even more specific, because one of the things that you don't really lay out in the essay, but I just want to make sure we get this on the table for the audience's basis, is we would expect there to be multiple meritocracies created in, a, let's say, a complex problem like running a 16-person intentional community. There'd be a a meritocracy for farming, a meritocracy for built environment, for things like housing and shared workspace, et cetera. There might be a meritocracy for external governmental relations, you know, not running afoul of the zoning commission or what have you. So there could be multiple of them. And then each one of those, and this is key to my understanding of it, each one of those meritocracies that's been created has its own individual red button. Right. So unlike, let's say, in the British parliamentary system where there's a vote of no confidence, you kick out all the ministers under the uh, forest small group process. The democracy can press the red button to get rid of the farming guy, but keep the other meritocracies in place. Is that is that a correct read of your structure? It's a correct read. But there's one nuance which is pretty important, which is that, you know, if, if whatever the, the, the structure of the meritocracy is concerned. So, for instance, you, you want to be careful to sort of have the individual functions be distinct. Yes. In other words, if I if I scope the the roles in, in terms of, you know, this person and the subgroup that they put together is responsible for this scope of choices, that the scopes don't overlap. Right? You want to have really clear partitioning as to what the scope is so that the, the entire meritocratic structure associated with that scope is collapsed in the vote of no confidence. So in other words, you're basically saying, if, if I hit the red button and I, and, I, and I basically collapse that particular meritocratic structure, that it is fully and completely collapsed back to uh, consensus. In other words, you are starting from scratch for that role, for that function. And so in a sense, it's, it's for a small group of people, it's probably not a good idea to have too many of these because you, you, really, you don't want to have a situation where there's any kind of ambiguity as to what the vote's being applied to. You want to have that be very discreet in each case. And again, with a small group, it's probably not so complicated because in, in, in a lot of cases, it's just, again, with smaller groups, it's easier to just treat it as, okay, we're going to cease all exterior functions, focus on how to get this right, and then rebootstrap it. 
Yeah, though I, though I don't know. I mean, a group of 16 people is big enough, and running a farm has enough discrete components to it that, you know, I could see five or six or seven meritocracies as being appropriate. And I could also see situations where you'd want to just make a change on one of them. But I could also see situations where, like, for instance, a division of authority isn't well crafted. And so maybe, I'm, I'm going to throw this out as a suggestion, maybe in addition to red buttons for each meritocracy created, there also ought to be the macro red button, which is collapse the whole thing and put us back into consensus to rethink how we divided authority up as an example. Yeah, this this would all be prepared as part of the consensus process initially is to, is to simply you know allocate what would be the areas in which there would be fallbacks. So in other words, as part of the, I think, you know, what you're, what you're bringing to mind here is, is that rather than just talking about the scope of, of the choices and the particular explicit architecture of how that uh, hierarchical form is going to be, you're also talking about, you know, what are the distributions of, of the fallback mechanism? So you're, prepa- you're preparing what the end of the meritocratic structure is going to be in advance. So, so in a sense, you're characterizing which buttons are going to be where and what they're going to do. Nicely said. And here's a really important aspect of this that goes to one of the downsides of democracy. You know, the problem with democracy is when there's a vote, there's a minority of losers, right, who might actually be pissed off. Under the Forrest Landry red button, break down the meritocracy, go back to consensus, even the losers of the vote now have substantial input into what comes next because they are participants in the consensus process. And each and every one of them has to sign off on what we do after we press the red button. So you don't necessarily get the disgruntled minority perspective that straight up voting would likely produce. Is that, is that a reasonable read? Yeah, that's, that's a reasonable read. The consensus process is essentially able to make really high-quality choices. And one of the places you really need really high-quality choices is, is essentially what is the interior structure of the group when we're looking at things that are, that are high-risk. Anything that's, that's a meritocratic process is effectively high-risk. You, you're risking the destabilization of the group as essentially being genuinely uh, able to be self-defining as a group. It could be incompetence. It could be corruption. It could be uh, we define that the boundaries incorrectly for the authority. You know, there's lots of ways that which uh, you might want to collapse the group. But on the other hand, throwing it back to consensus is a pretty high price to pay because now the group itself is responsible for that function. So people would be relatively unlikely to do it frivolously. So I, mean, I like that tension, I guess, is where I'm, where I'm getting at. All right. The guy isn't as good as we'd like, the one we chose for cornfield management, but it's a hell of a lot better than us having to manage the cornfield. So we'll put up with them till the end of the harvest, and then we'll appoint somebody else for next year as an example of how this might actually roll out in the real world. So there, that's democracy. Well, it turns out there's one other function that you built into democracy. Again, narrow, specific. Do you want to talk about that? Well, I, please introduce it. Go ahead. Okay, which is that the democracy can suspend the consensus process for a temporary period of time on a specific issue. And the example you gave, let's say tempers are hot on how we should define and who we should appoint to deal with the zoning authorities, for instance, right? And so the democracy, and, and, and as a key thing, democracy, as I read it again, I like a little clarification on this, is essentially the equivalent of a petition signed by half plus one of the members of the community. So it's not, you know, those who showed up a quorum and whatever the percentage of that is. It's literally half 
plus one of the whole membership of the organizations, let's say, signs the petition to do X so that it is a true majority, not just one of these opportunistic parliamentary majorities. But it could say consensus. You, uh, we're, the group as a whole are acting like children. We're not coming to consensus. We're not converging. And so we're going to have a two-week timeout by majority vote only, and we're going to specify a temporary period of time where we're not going to discuss this and we'll go work on other stuff. So that's the other function that you laid out for democracy. This is very well stated. Thank you. That's, that's, that's correct. So for instance, one of the ways to think about this is you have the group communication internal, right? You have the group communication to the outside world, to other groups or to you know anything that's beyond the boundary. And then you have the notion of not communicating, right? So for instance, the group might not be communicating internally or externally. It might actually just be suspended for a period of time. And so in effect, the the notion here is, is that in the same way that consensus can move us into a capacity to communicate externally, right? So interior communication is bootstrapping the capacity for interior communication, bootstrapping capacity for exterior communication, that if the vote collapses exterior communication back to interior communication, but that interior communication itself is not stable, then in effect, the, the vote can suspend the interior communication until things cool off a bit. And so, you know, there, there is a tension here. There's, there's a tension of, you know, if the group is feeling like it has to communicate with the outside world, then it's going to want to have that consensus come to resolution so that it can develop the infrastructure needed to communicate with the outside world. If, on the other hand, it's pushed back into consensus because it doesn't, the, the exterior communication doesn't last, but as you mentioned, the tempers are really high, then to some extent, the group itself isn't even able to function in ter- in, with interior communication. So the democratic process is therefore used as a kind of relief valve or escape valve to move into, you know, essentially a, a more temporally spaced out way of being. And, and this sometimes can make the difference between the group either continues or it doesn't. If the group can't develop any kind of interior consensus uh, at all, then to some extent, its capacity to function as a group has been compromised. And to some extent, the democratic process is essentially allowing for that to be observed. Yeah, that's actually very interesting. So I got three questions to essentially clarify that came up as I was reading this. And this, uh, for, let's let's do the third one first, which is, in some sense, it would be you. It might be useful for the entity to have some specific parameters around these powers. For instance, the ability to suspend might have a specific time limit. Uh, let's say no more than 14 days or 21 or whatever. And under your scheme, could you imagine, I would, this would have to be consensus, I imagine. The consensus creates a constitution about parameters within the process. And one of those might be when democracy stops consensus discussion, it uh, can do so for up to 21 days and it must specify the period, but not more than 21 days. Does something like that fit your vision? It, it does, but you, you already mentioned the thing is, is that any, any governance or bylaws that the group is essentially electing for itself wants to be something that is essentially consensus-derived. And in that same sort of way, it might be consensus-revised at some future point. 
Though it is important to note that consensus decisions are very sticky because it, all it takes is one objector to stop a change. So let's say you set it to 21 days, 15 out of 16 people think it should be reset to 14. It stays to 21 until you get that 16th person on board. So it is important who's ever to do, doing these constitutional things uh, in a consensus process is very high stakes. And one of the things one must realize is that it's not like a democracy where it's relatively easy to fix. So be hard to fix stuff that you do by consensus. So people should keep that in mind. The second question is, in the paper and in our discussion so far, you envision a meritocracy as being the simple appointment of a single person. Does the idea of a, a structured executive team also fit within the idea? Say, for instance, you know, again, let's say the farm. The farm is you know, a farm, say a hundred acre farm, big 50 hectare farm is a pretty big farm, a lot of complicated things going on. It might well be that you want to appoint a multiple person team and say, all right, I want a, a farm manager and one person for crops and one person for animals. And each of the two have, have relative autonomy in their field, but there's a head honcho if disputes arise, you know, oh, damn pigs are in the, in the lettuce. Could you imagine under your structure, the consensus process defining a more complex meritocracy? Yes, I do. And, and I think that to some extent, there's, there's also the alternative that the one person that you've elected essentially defines for themselves who they're going to ask to be those people, or it might be that the group itself defines what that is prior to release, so to speak, i.e. the transition from a consensus to the, the run button, right? It's the same way there's a red button, there's a green button. The green button is, let's do this, right? And so in effect, um, however, the, this part gets defined could either be, as you said, a single person or it could be a group of people that have defined relationships between them and so on. The notion of single focus was important, mostly to clarify what was meant by the communication dynamic. So in effect, you know, insofar as the group, again, having a boundary between itself and the outside world, that all exterior and interior communications that are crossing that boundary, like so for instance, any anything that the group wants to say to the world or anything that the world wants to say to the group, you in effect need to create a function that's a little bit like a, a single mind or single point of contact so that where there is uh, ambiguity, that, that, that those things essentially are clear so that the group has uh, itself the appearance from the outside world as, as, as being coherent. So in, in that particular sense, if I have uh, two points of contact, like say I've got two groups and I have person A talking to person C in the second group, so A in the first group and C in the second group, and I have person B in the first group talking to person D in the second group. It could be very easily the case that those two communication paths uh, end up saying contradictory things and the two groups end up not coordinating with one another uh, because of their difference in, in messages. And then you end up with various versions of the telephone game and, and all sorts of ethical issues, depending upon who's regarding which channel of communication is more powerful. So in this sense, it just becomes very, very important that for every intergroup relationship or every exterior relationship, that there be at least some way to essentially guarantee full coherency, which usually means, you know, aligning yourself to the package of one mind and one body. But that's, that's a, you know, it's an aberration associated with the fact that humans uh, mostly come in units of single people. Except for the ones that are schizophrenic, and then there's two or more. Uh, but the uh, you know, roses are red, violets are blue. I'm schizophrenic, and so am I. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I will say that I think that maybe your thinking is uh, was more heavily dominated by these protocol issues than it was by, say, 
practical work on the ground where a more structured meritocracy may well make sense, like you know the farming example or a business. No, no I, I think you're right. I mean, it's 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 very much the case that, that that all of these possibilities are important to consider. I was trying to essentially come up with a way of thinking about it that that, that revealed um, some of the issues that that, that are that are available to, to, to solve. Like, so for instance, in, in this particular case, by understanding that we're thinking about it in terms of archetypal forms and uh, inequality versus equality and how those two trade off against one another in terms of capacity, particularly in terms of communication and information flows. And, and what does it mean to make choices? And what does it mean to have agreements? And, and what is the agreement of an individual versus a group? And how do we think about all that? And so on. So in this sense, the, the, the whole point of the essay is essentially to give language to a lot of these concepts and to essentially show how they play off against one another in a way that uh, allows us for thinking about larger issues. Very good. Right, now, third, the, my third question, which I had when I was rereading this, is if we have a meritocracy and we have a, a theoretical democracy to press the red button if things aren't going right, in traditional uh, democratic theory, one of the important things is information. So I'm imagining that if I wanted to create a meritocracy from the consensus combine, the 16 people sitting around the table, I might well want to be able to specify reporting requirements so that the democracy can act responsibly. For instance, if I have no idea what the corn yield was, you know, or what the current survey and estimate of the corn yield is, I have no idea if the cornfield team is doing a good job or not. So can you, do you imagine in this structure having stipulated reporting requirements for a meritocracy as uh, something that fits into your architecture? Well, of course. I mean, you know, what we're, what we're really talking about is the communication paths. So in effect, when we're looking at uh, consensus, it's everybody's communicating with everybody and every communication path is equal to every other communication path. We're dealing with any kind of meritocratic structure. We're dealing with communication paths that have a hierarchical form. And that might mean that, you know, to some extent, we're sensing things through these uh, individuals that are maybe on the ground and, and, and in the field and know what's going on. Like, hey, the, the pigs are in the, the wrong field, for example. And so, yeah, there may be explicit balancing of who has what authority and what responsibility. And of course, if we're doing good governance design, we're thinking about making sure that a person's authority and their responsibility are effectively equal, right? I don't have more responsibility and authority basically means I'm, I'm likely to get you know trapped because something's going wrong, but I can't fix the problem. Or you might end up with situations where you have more authority and not as much responsibility, which is a kind of tyranny. You know, there's, there's no feedback mechanism that essentially stabilizes it aside from hitting the red button and essentially starting over. So, so in this sense, yeah, the communication paths are, are very much the, the essence of what is being defined in terms of who is communicating to who about what, when. And, you know, again, that structure may be something that the uh, consensus process explicitly puts in place, or it may be something that the uh, focal point explicitly uh, puts in place after they've essentially gotten the green light or the red button, the green button's been pushed and, and extends for as long as the red button has not yet been pushed. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah I'm going to throw out another, uh, I'm just thinking out loud here. It's kind of fun. Okay. I imagine we have six focal authorities, uh, meritocracies out there doing their various thing, but the consensus group is too big to focus on these inbound messages. So instead, we have a seventh authority called the newspaper, the Gazette. And their job is to receive the inbound messages, write them up in succinct, readable fashion, and publish a weekly or 
uh, daily, depending on the flow of messages, gazette for the uh, consensus team to read. Just as an example of information flow architecture that one might be able to create off this thing by uh, by using its own rules of creating a, a, a seventh meritocracy whose job it is to process and communicate in condensed form messages from the others. Well, I think that, you know, obviously all of these structures are possible. And, and, and so in effect, the, the one thing that I would, I would definitely sort of point out is that when it's consensus, everybody's participating. And when it's meritocracy, most people are participating, right? I mean, the group is small enough that somebody's going to be doing something usually. And so in effect, there's a, there's a notion here that it isn't so much that, you know, when we're in meritocratic process, that that the person that's receiving those messages is essentially communicating that either to the whole group or to specific people that need to know and, and so on. And as long as the group is comfortable with that information flow, then it isn't so much that the consensus is trying to do anything or make any choices. They're basically trusting the meritocratic process to do that until that trust goes away. For some reason or other, it looks like something's going seriously wrong. Then you hit the red button and now we're back into consensus process. So the consensus process is treated as a as, as essentially a, an alternate mode. Right. So, for instance, you have you have the group in three modes. You have uh, consensus mode, bootstraps, meritocratic mode, and then you have democracy mode that puts it back into consensus mode. And so, in effect, relative to any particular scope, you know, that is going to be either interior or exterior, that you that you have a clear transition path for each of these modes. And your system does. That's what I loved about it, right? It, it, the flow makes sense. Consensus creates meritocracy. Democracy presses red button, destroys meritocracy. Consensus recreates new meritocracy. I was just adding the embellishments that you need some reporting and some information to be able to make those decisions wisely. But I think the fundamentals of the three-part model and the way you've allocated the the authorities and the powers, actually, uh, I have not found a flaw in it. I like it a lot. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty cool because the thing is, is that once once you start to really look at it in sort of these fundamental archetypal forms, you gain a lot of clarity about you know, why these particular trade-offs are needed and what the advantages and disadvantages are of each and how to essentially trade off the advantages and disadvantages by using all three together. So in effect, this is, this is, this is the insight. It was surprising to me to, to this because, you know, a lot of times people say, well, let's try to use this system for all things that are needed. And, you know, this system being one of the three archetypes of some variation of, and if, if you just take any two of them and combine them, you don't end up with a solution. But if you take all three of them and you combine them, you do end up with a solution that actually compensates for the disadvantages and plays to the strengths of each one of these methodologies. And that's a surprising result because usually it's sort of like, well, this doesn't work by itself and any pair of all these things doesn't work by itself, but the three of them together does. And the way in which it does that effectively is almost a, it's, it's, it's kind of a limitation on how democracy works that I think that's the most surprising coming from a USA point of view is that, you know, we kind of all feel that there are, advantages to each of these things, but we tend to say, well, democracy is the best. But when we look at it, we say, well, actually, democracy is the best within a very limited scope of what it should be used for. And then it's it's actually, it's terrible at coming up with the kind of choices that consensus is really good at. On the other hand, consensus is terrible at making the kind of choices that meritocracy is really good at. And meritocracy is really terrible at making the kind of choices that democracy is really good at. And so in effect, by, by leveraging these against one another in this sort of specific way, you end up with this balancing thing that actually is, is way better than anything we would expect to be possible. 
I have to say, I learned about this 2015, been thinking about it on and off now for seven years, and I still like it. Uh, I think you actually have come up with something here. It's very interesting. So we've talked about the base model that's laid out in most of the essay, and that's, let's say, a group up to 16 or maybe 30 on a good day with the wind if everybody has high capacity, but let's just say 16. But now we want to do something bigger. You know, I use the example specifically of the small farm of 16 people because front and center in my mind today is thinking about so-called proto-bees from the Game B movement, which is the next big move by Game B, which is to build on-the-ground communities of around 150 people when they're mature. It may take five years to get there, but, you know, 150 people who have to manage a lot of complicated stuff. And certainly 16 or even 30 is way smaller than 150. Uh, And you do then lay out how one could build groups of groups and come up with multi-layers. I have some questions about that, but why don't you start by laying out that? You also indicated in the pregame discussion that you have some additional thoughts on how your small group practice might scale up. So let's start with uh, what you wrote in the paper about multi-level, and then we'll go on to new thinking. Well, this is, this is probably the single most important question of this entire conversation, which is how do we scale up this process? And so in effect, what, I, what, I, what I'd like to do is, is to first point out that you know, when we're talking about scaling up, we really want to think about the different dynamics that different group sizes imply. So for example, this, this uh, architecture probably were, you know, that's defined in the small group process probably wouldn't work for, say, a group of smaller than about six people. Because in that case, the level of formality that would be needed in order to say we're explicitly in the mode of consensus or explicitly in the mode of meritocracy and so on and so forth, usually a group of people of, say, six or fewer can just more or less, as friends, agree to how they want to operate as a group and how to coordinate and collaborate with one another. And the, and the level of formality. And business, I call that managing the company around the lunch table. And up to six or seven, you can do that. Exactly. So, so in this sense, the... The, the, the small group dynamic that's being described has a limit in terms of the scale towards the lower end, i.e. towards the scale of zero people being participating. But it also, when I, when I suggested 16, I was basically thinking a kind of the upper end. And, you know, my ideal size in, in thinking about the group process is I just sort of thought of a group of, say, 9 to 12 people. When I get up to around 16, then there's, there starts to be a kind of tension in the sense that Consensus process, the larger the group, the, the, the easier it is for the conversation to be derailed by various emotional dynamics and, and, and people's individual traumas and all that other kind of stuff. And of course, you know, the larger the scope of the number of people involved, the, the greater the number of geometric relationships that are involved, right? Both in terms of just the sheer number of communication paths, uh, increasing, you know, with the number of people in a, in a kind of, uh, you know, N squared sort of way. Uh, but also just that the sheer number of kinds of life experiences that are involved also increases. So you end up with certainly far more than n squared number of things that can that can happen in terms of people communicating with one another, and the and the level of modeling that each of them has to do with respect to one another. So we're starting to think about the kind of Dunbar number sort of territory. How well can I keep track of the relationships? Really understand what's going on and what context shifts which person's understanding or misunderstandings, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense. You know, we, we, we notice that as we start to try to get past 16 people, that the, the, the chances of the consensus process working well or the level of creativity that a meritocratic process might evince to uh, essentially deceive the group is, as you know, to, to essentially hide a, a uh, you know, some sort of personal benefit, uh, you know, some sort of strategic advantage that 
the, the, the group itself for, for whatever reason due to marketing or, or charisma or whatever uh, just simply doesn't notice that it's not representing the group anymore. I can have uh, principal agent problems, which are uh, kind of corrupt and not necessarily, uh, they're a cult, they're hidden, they're, 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 they're not seen by the group. And so as a result, there ends up being long-term disadvantages. So, so in this sense, you know, to ask the question of, you know, how do we scale this up? Well, at first, at the time that I was thinking about this, bear in mind that this essay was written actually uh, before 2000. I didn't publish it until about 2001, but but it really reflects the thinking I was doing at the time and say the, the late 90s. And so in, in this particular sense, as I, as I was completing the essay, I was thinking about these scaling issues. I was starting to explore the notion of, well, maybe we have intergroup relationships that are coordinated through this process. Or maybe the intergroups themselves could be coordinated with this process. And so I included just a few notes at the bottom about how we might address the issue of scale. Since then, I've had a chance to do quite a bit more work. And so while the, the core idea of, of how an individual group or team would, would function has, has remained the same and has endured uh, well in time, I also haven't thought about any improvements to it that make any sense. I mean, it, it actually is as is, is good as it stands. I think when it came to scaling it up, my, my thinking has changed dramatically. So at first, I tried to do the scale up in the sense of you know layers of groups or multiple groups or the interactions between groups. And um, that was just the first of a, of a very large number of experiments that were done in that space, a lot of different modeling and a lot of different uh, exploratory things that I tried in the business that I had uh, at, at, at one point the privilege of, of being the administrator of and so on. And so what I've, what I've come to notice, and this is was was very surprising to me is that you can't scale up that model, not in the way that it's described. You know, at first you would think that we, we would we would create larger groups by essentially accreting uh, onto smaller groups, but there's a kind of instability that results due to, frankly, intersexual dynamics. Right? There's a kind of much much stronger evolutionary power associated with uh, some forces of evolution than than with others. This will take a minute to describe. Do you, do you mind my going into that? No, no, no. This is this is really important. Take as much time as you need on this. Okay. So one one of the things that that that, that is particularly helpful to understand why these ideas have the shape that they do and what is, what kind of things are needed in order for us to actually achieve scale. As I as I mentioned earlier, the main tension that is being resolved in the small group process is this difference between horizontal process or horizontal communication and consensus and vertically oriented communication in, in meritocracy. But I, I made the observation sort of in passing that evolution, our biological heritage, you know, through, through you know, the last billion years or so, uh, just, just as animals, multicellular organisms has given us a very strong propensity to prefer a hierarchically organized structure. I mean, basically all of nature does this in one fashion or another. And it actually becomes quite tricky to look at ecosystems and, and to, to see the underlying substrate of all the cooperation, all of the sort of uh, consensus process that evolution is also built into it. So when we're thinking about uh, how to do large-scale governance design, a good piece of it is, is, is actually understanding uh, evolution and our evolutionary heritage in terms of the biases that that creates, not just individually, but collectively. So for a while, it was a lot of work essentially associated with identifying what are the sociological biases that emerge in large group process that basically uh, have us prefer things like market systems or representative systems or voting systems that, that, that end up with the kind of discapacities um, in the space of dealing with things like existential risk or large, big, hairy, audacious problems, as I mentioned earlier. So... 
to, to really be able to, to, to have the tool set to address this, we actually have to think about evolution in kind of first-person terms or in, in kind of principled level terms. So in the same sort of way that we made a move in, in, in looking at governance architectures in terms of their archetypes and what are the principles that we're ultimately trying to address when thinking about the notion of communication and, and choice making and things like that that we essentially need to go back to those level of principles to think about how to produce a governance architecture at scale that actually works. And I found that I needed to go back to the drawing board in a lot of ways to really do that because of the scaling issues associated with consensus. So first of all, evolution has three principal drivers. You can think about as point changes, what we normally think of as mutation, survival selection, which would basically be whether or not that particular animal continues, and then mate selection, which would essentially be how you know, the code is recombined between two animals to produce a third. And so in effect, you know, if you think about it in a kind of, again, archetypal sort of way, you have, uh, imagine you have a long string of digits that describe the sort of code of, of a thing. You know, it could be the genetic code or it could be a computer code or something like that. But, the, but the, the genotype can either be changed at one location or can be changed at all locations. This would be the survival selection. I cancel out the whole thing. Or I can basically do something that's somewhere between changing one thing and changing everything, which would be changing some things by combining them with some other things, you know, taking groups of patterns or groups of bits and, and, and merging them together. So the recombinatoric aspect. If I'm thinking about this in terms of fundamental algebraic theory and so on and so forth, the fundamental computer science theory, then essentially what I notice is, is that the point mutations are additive in their effect. The... Uh, survival selection process is multiplicative in its effect, and the recombinatoric process is exponential in its effect. And so when I'm, and, and, and you might say, well, why the heck are we talking about evolutionary theory and we're talking about governance stuff? And, and I mentioned, you know, first of all, that we, we need to sort of understand the forces involved. The recombinatoric effects are far, far more powerful in terms of their influence on information flow and choice-making dynamics and so on and so forth than most people would appreciate. So when we're looking at why is it the case that we can't scale up from, you know, small group process to large group process, I think, i.e. things that are in the post-Dunbar size, we can't do it directly because of, because of these, these pressures, these underlying forces that are essentially built into the evolutionary mathematics themselves. It's not just human evolution in this planet. It's essentially that the very math of the dynamic of evolution itself essentially uh, requires these sort of compensations. So it, it turns out that there's no process of accretion or no process of essentially starting with smaller groups to create larger groups that works because of these, these uh, unbounded pressures. But it is the case that there is a kind of pressure that comes back um, on, on, the, on the scale of the large. So for instance, you know, while we might say, okay, market systems, for example, win well when people create new markets and therefore gain exponential returns on their investments. There is a situation where we are actually living in a finite world and that there is a place in which the additive uh, aspects of it essentially come back and, and, and dominate the exponential things. An exponential curve can't just grow uh, indefinitely. A point is reached at which essentially it falls back simply due to resource constraints. And, and, and one of the main problems we're seeing as a civilization is this, this issue, the sort of uh, Hubble curve uh, way of thinking, uh, regardless of whether we're talking about farming or, or energy or resources such as copper or, or tin or whatever. The point is, is that if I'm basically looking at sort of the way in which these forces interplay with one another, it turns out that there's this kind of uncanny valley that exists between a small governance process and large governance process. 
And so in effect, I had to re-architect how I thought about large governance process on, a, on, a, on these same principles, on these, on these same underlying dynamics. But the shape of it is such that it doesn't actually start working until we get past the Dunbar group size. So in other words, the next viable solution doesn't start working until you have a group of at least 200. And this, this is a surprising thing. So in other words, if we're looking at the total solution space starting at zero, one person or five people, you know, again, the sort of dinner table thing kind of works out well. If you get to the scale of between, say, six people and 16 people, the small group process works well. But then there's a no man's land of uh, essentially just what is currently being traded as institutional forms, things like um, businesses and schools and governments and stuff like that, that, that have all of the apparatus of, of what we normally think of as an institution. Uh, I would include even religious organizations under this sort of rubric. But then there is this new space that emerges once you get past this sort of no man's land and, 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 and a new vector of good governance architecture actually emerges, which is stable once you get past 200 or so. And, you know, in effect, that's, that's essentially something which at this particular point has never been tried as far as I can see uh, anywhere in human civilization. If, if you look at, you know, governance architectures that have checks and balances uh, in the United States, for example, you have these sort of three things. You have the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And these are kind of, you know, checked and balances against one another to some extent. You're at least starting to see some of the principles that are needed in order to identify what would be the way in which we would actually stabilize the forces of, of exponential drivers of, of inequality versus, say, you know, kind of the, the actual limitations associated with the environment and with the ecosystem that, that essentially need us to make wise choices in this space. So in, in one sense, it's a little bit like saying, well, if we're looking at how do we do good governance at scale, we, we essentially need to think about the sense-making process in a way that implements uh, consensus, meritocracy, and democracy in a kind of holographic way. See, the trouble is, is that when we, when we look at institutional forms, all institutional forms, so far as they're constructed in the modern world, are, are basically overemphasizing a uh, kind of omniscient modal way of thinking, i.e. overemphasizing kind of hierarchical way of thinking. And the, the model of the market or the market-based process is, is itself not actually responsive over long periods of time. It doesn't have the coherency needed to actually address uh, longer-term issues. And both of these essentially are, are, are indicators. So, for instance, if I, if again, I'm looking at the bandwidth or the kind of communication dynamics, the bandwidth associated with market systems is just too low because it doesn't necessarily have connectivity across time. Yeah, it's a, it's a local hill climber, but market systems is a local hill climber. Exactly. So, so in a sense, it, it doesn't have the kind of global awareness both across time and space in order to essentially do the sort of optimization or to have the wisdom to respond to the level of complexity of the problems that we as a species are currently faced with, i.e. everything left over after uh, the toolkit that we currently have, uh, institutional forms that, that we currently have can solve. We're left with this residual class of problems that those kinds of architectures of human organization can't solve. And of course, this is now becoming more and more important for us to address. So in this particular sense, if we're saying, okay, well, the bandwidth and the, the kind of communication dynamics associated with market-based systems can't do it. And we look at the bandwidth associated with um, any kind of hierarchical system, which is essentially all institutions, then categorically we can say that, you know, fundamentally the communication dynamics that are needed just exceed the bandwidth that's available for those kinds of systems altogether. So we're not going to get there by essentially making small increments to uh, existing systems. We're not going to be able to do it by uh, upgrades to the voting methodology, and this includes things like quadratic voting and 
you know, kind of, you know, first past the post and all the different ways of thinking about Arrow's paradox. We're not going to get there by leadership dynamics or any other kind of hierarchical model based upon that. We're not going to get there on the basis of narrative or narrative control or propaganda type processes. We're not going to get there through new kinds of financial instruments or, or, or market-based systems of, of, of that nature. Cryptocurrency is not going to help us. NFTs aren't going to help us. We essentially need to go back to first principles ways of thinking about this sort of thing. So in a sense, we're starting to look at stuff, uh, you know, Jordan Hall mentions this thing called the OODA loop, you know, where I, I orient, I kind of make sense of the world, I connect that to the values that I have, and then I start to think about what is the thing that I need to do next and to, to essentially perceive you know, local position in terms of response capacities and things like that. So in, in this sort of sense, we're, we're looking at how do we create a kind of collective wisdom or collective intelligence or collective capacity at the level of large groups that can actually be able to implement the, the level of holographic communication needed to have the bandwidth needed, to have the kind of uh, ability to see what are the wise choices that will uh, basically balance both the needs of sustainability, i.e. being here for a while, and evolution, which essentially is uh, the ability to recognize new solutions, to essentially adapt to problems and adapt to change. So in effect, we're actually talking about the dynamics of group consciousness. Because if I look at, you know, like say, say for example, that I, I have a, a capacity to do really fast evolution, but I don't have sustainability. What I've basically done is I've created a, a thing that has really good ability to, to, to be change, right? Evolution is change and it can respond to change, but without sustainability, it just ends, right? So my sustainability is, is also important. But if I look at sustainability, sustainability is essentially an absence of change. It's essentially those things that remain the same. So how do I mediate between change and changelessness? And that, that, that's now we're starting to get down to the level of, of, of which we can begin to see what sort of things we're, we're actually looking to do. If it was just a system or an algorithm that was essentially defining the relationship between change and changelessness, then I might just go directly and observe, well, an algorithm is a static thing. It's a kind of code that remains the same and is attempting to deal with whatever comes up. And so in effect, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of, it, it works for as long as it is the case that a change comes, that nature changes in such a way that the algorithm doesn't know how to handle it, at which point the algorithm just fails completely. So in this particular sense, there needs to be a way of thinking about the relationship between change and changelessness that isn't itself already making assumptions about being based in just change or changelessness. There needs to be a kind of consciousness about when to prefer one and when to prefer the other that is actually more globally in scope, i.e. wisdom at the level of groups. And so in effect, by, by saying all of this, what I'm, what I'm really doing is I'm starting to say, I'm, I'm, I'm basically setting up the point that we can't think about this in terms of any kind of what I would regard omniscient or enclosure-based model of governance. We actually have to think about it as essentially a kind of reification of both a transcendental way of thinking, which includes things like values and the, and the underlying cultures and the sort of basis of our choice and the capacity to choose, as well as the direct realization of participation in those choices. So in effect, you know, one of the first things that come out of this is that it's not a representative model. It can't be. Right? And there, there's, there's no place in which it makes sense to essentially fall into the trap associated with the principal agent problem or, or the capacity to you respond to a situation where you're asking some sort of representative to do it on your behalf. So in effect, what we're looking at is how do we involve the whole community 
in choice-making process such that the communication dynamics don't overload the individuals, right? That we're not asking every person to be expert at everything, but that in effect, the overall group still has the level of wisdom and discernment necessary to essentially respond to environmental changes or external changes in the world in a coherent way. So rather than thinking about it in terms of, you know, some sort of top-down architecture, we're thinking about it sort of from the middle outwards, not from just bottom up, which would be evolution, or top down, which would be technology, but essentially from the human towards the towards the the, the edges, so to speak. I.e., you know, at, at an ordinary sea and scale, ordinary sea and touch scales, the the network of agreements is supported by uh, the network of relationships is supported by the network of communication. So, therefore, how do we get communication right? And so, in, in effect, there's a there's a, there's a cultural transmission that's going on here. There's essentially a, a, a motion from thinking about strategy first, which is the usual way that people think about this, and then uh, trying to have that strategy, you know, create a vision that essentially can be used to manipulate the culture to create an outcome. We actually need to start culture first. And, and I think this is something you've pointed to in a number of your essays as well, is that if we get the human dynamics right, you know, the health aspects right, the, the sort of local ecology sort of stuff down, that to some extent there emerges a capacity to um, from that culture to have the culture become aware of what its values are, right? And from those values to articulate a vision and from that vision to essentially implement the strategy. The strategy comes last because it's coming out of the community rather than out of any single individual as it would in a sort of meritocratic sense. So in effect, the, the dynamics of how do we embody culture and what is the sense-making that we do at that level at the, at the notion of values discovery and clarifying what success means and then doing the kind of modeling to basically say, are the approaches that we are taking as a community um, actually generative of health, generative of well-being, and, and, and wise enough to respond with the challenges that we're actually faced with? And so in, in this particular sense, we're, we're looking at a kind of you know, dynamic that, that, is, that is considered in terms of layers. It's considered in terms of how each process essentially supports other processes that collectively create a capacity to respond to the world on the part of the whole group. So, you know, at, at, at this particular point, you know, just, just make the observation that civilization is complex. There's, there's, there's a tremendous number of factors involved and so on and so forth. But a layered architecture with the right sort of uh, capacity enabling aspects built into each layer can essentially combine to create uh, overall a, a system that, that has organization much the same way that the body does. So, for example, you know, is it the case that the brain's more important than the heart or the lungs? Well, no, actually, the digestion is just as important. The muscles are important. Everything is important. And it's the way the whole thing works together that creates a responsive capacity on the part of the whole being. So what is the equivalent of that in terms of, of the sort of layered architecture, or the multi-system architecture that itself creates more than the sum of the parts and actually is able to balance the additive, multiplicative, and exponential aspects of the real situation of the world? And so in, in, at this particular point, what I'm basically doing is I'm saying, okay, rather than looking for solutions in the space between, say, 16 people and 160 people, let's look at what kinds of architectures we would actually need to have at that scale that essentially is on the other side of the uncanny valley that, that enables us to essentially think about those things in a way that does actually balance all of these principles. And that turns out to be a very long and involved conversation. I'll probably spend you know, several years trying to articulate just what that is and how those principles come to bear. But if you're familiar with my work on EGP, you're seeing what I would call level two, 
which is, you know, after we've worked on, say, human health and, and trauma resolution and, and the kinds of things that allow us to communicate with one another in a way that is particularly clear, to be able to not just see through things and have insights, but to move through issues. Then we're looking at the kind of sense making towards, you know, what's actually going on? What are the values? Are we asking even the right questions? And so in, in this particular sense, we're beginning to basically do self-identity discovery at the group level rather than at the individual level. And this turns out to be something which is uh, profoundly important for the capacity of the group to be able to operate uh, in any real way responsive to the kind of complex problems that we're addressing. Okay. I think you're laying out some of the issues, though not even gesturing towards any of the solutions, I would say. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm gesturing to the category of solutions. So for instance, the first thing I've done is if, if, if there's like 100 different solutions proposed, what I've already done is I've basically said, of these 100, 90 of them aren't even worth thinking about. So for instance, you know, anytime somebody proposes to me a cryptocurrency or anytime somebody proposes an update to the voting system or, or some incremental improvement to market process or democratic process, I basically say, you don't understand the problem, right? You're, you're, you're basically trying to solve it with finance when it goes down, when, when finance itself is dependent upon infrastructure, you know, computers and networks and things. Um, and the infrastructure is itself based upon, you know, the kind of cultural dynamics and the cultural dynamics are essentially being destabilized and are actually, you know, from the market system, destabilizing the ecosystem and the ecology in which the culture lives. Then to some extent, you're dealing with a much more fundamental problem. Well, that's the metasystemic problem, right? People have a tendency to focus on one system when in reality, our culture is many systems which interconnect and influence each other. Clearly, for instance, the dynamics of how late stage financialized capitalism interacts with culture is definitely a real thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Even at the simple minded level of TikTok, what uh, what things end up on TikTok and get monetized, right, produces a, a cultural monetary interaction. And then yeah. both of those influence, you know, let's say electoral politics. So I would say, you know, the fundamental problem of many of these point solutions is that they don't address the metasystemic level. So, so addressing the metasystemic level, of course, wants us to see all these layers, right? So for instance, we can know that culture is built on ecology and that infrastructure is built on culture and that finance is built, you know, economic systems of whatever virtualized kind are built upon infrastructure of one sort or another. So in effect, if we're, if we're looking at, you know, what's really going on, then we're basically saying, well, okay, maybe we can describe it as, you know, finance and economics as destabilizing infrastructure, i.e. businesses just not paying attention to their, to their fundamentals. Or we can look at it as that capitalistic systems have effectively become stronger than any kind of community, right? Rather than having the marketplace occur in the community, we now have the community basically being a resource that's extracted from by the market system. And this, of course, is a problem. But we also have, as, as many ecologists know, there's, there's, you know, the, the economic system is making choices to essentially uh, favor capital over capital, but it's destabilizing the ecosystem that's supporting that. The, the ecosystem basically being the life systems, you know, for, you know, the planet, basically all of the plants and animals and that kind of thing. And so in, in, in effect, you know, we can say, okay, well, if we're going to address the metasystemic issues, to some extent, we actually need to understand the uh, relationship between the ecological dynamics and the cultural dynamics. And this is a place where hardly anybody is looking. I mean, some, some people are, are thinking about it in terms of histories of, you know, injustice and things like that. But the kind of history that I'm concerned with here goes back, you know, 10,000 to 100,000 years. And so in effect, there's a, there's, there's a situation where we're actually trying to be able to understand the ways in which human psychology works 
both at the level of individual and at the level of groups, such that we can rightly do good governance by compensating for those uh, fundamental drivers of human behavior. And so without understanding the drivers of human behavior, we can't good we can't do good governance design that, that is essentially addressing the causes rather than just the symptoms. So in effect, you know, I, I, I can lay out some elements of the solution, but, but mostly I'm trying to just identify what the category of the solution is, like what, what kinds of things are, are even possible to articulate as questions. Like, so for instance, you know, to, to be able to describe the solution to some extent, I have to upgrade your imagination. Because the imagination of almost everybody listening to this conversation is very much shaped by institutional forms and market forms. And these are the ways in which we've solved problems up to date. But what got us here won't get us there. And so to some extent, there's a, there's a, there's a situation where we actually need to really identify what does the long term actually look like. If we're looking at transition and, you know, if we're building a bridge that's going to get us from here to there, I kind of need to know where the footings of the other end of the bridge need to go. And so in, in, in this particular sense, you know, what are the dynamics that actually create conscious, sustainable evolution? What are the ways in which we as a species can actually balance the relationship between man, machine, and nature? And, and, and this becomes critically important because, in effect, technology is a creative process, much the same way that evolution is. And that if I actually want to, you know, find some way to make good choices about technology, then I'm going to need to essentially understand the principles of the relationship between technology and evolution in the first principle sort of way, which is part of the reason why I spent some time talking about evolutional dynamics. So in, in, in this sense, you know, what would a solution actually need to be? Well, in, in, in one sense, we need to have the level of wisdom to essentially handle technology and its capacity to affect both cultures and ecosystems, right? That's, that's required. Uh, in one sense, you know, when we're, when we're looking at, you know, our species, we're literally the dumbest species capable of developing the tech that we currently have. Yeah, I love to say that. In fact, uh, I always say that to the first order, we must be the stupidest possible general intelligence because of how we got here, right? Mother Nature is not profligate in her gifts. Uh, and then, of course, once you know a little bit about cognitive neuroscience, there's so many obvious limitations in human cognition that, yeah, first order, we're just this much over the line. Right? Yeah, just barely over the line. And so, in effect, there's a kind of uncanny valley between, you know, our wisdom to basically have this technology and work with it well. And there's all sorts of Fermi paradox type considerations, right? So, so in a sense, there's a there's a need for us to essentially cross the valley between the level of wisdom that is needed to handle the intelligence and the just barely sufficient level of intelligence necessary to have tech in the first place. And there's a gap between those two. And that gap is not going to be filled in by evolutionary process. Evolution could not have possibly prepared us for this circumstance. There's, there's no thing that it was responding to previously that it could have selected for. And this is essentially a singular event. So, you know, how many times is evolution going to create a modern technological species and then keep trying all the different things until it can't do the experiment any, anymore, right? If we mess it up to some extent, we've debased evolution from the capacity to even perform the experiment of what does a technological species even looks like that can endure. And, and, and this is important. The Fermi paradox, which listeners know I am obsessed with, is important. If it turns out there's 100,000 such experiments being run in parallel in just this galaxy, then eh, if we blow up the Earth, so what? However, we do not know whether we may be the only general intelligence in the universe. At least until we know the answer to that question, we have a gigantic moral burden not to fuck up. That's that's 
precisely right. And it, and it turns out to be the case that even if there were other life forms in, in the universe, that the level of unicity associated with this plant, and unicity means uniqueness, i.e. the uniqueness in the universe of life on this earth, uh, can't be treated as uh, having less value than, say, one quadrillion quadrillion dollars. And that's a very conservative estimate. So in effect, there's a, there's a notion here that in any real sense of cho making choices, even if we're thinking about, you know, capital as being the driver of our choices, we are severely underestimating the value of the earth on which we live, regardless of however else we think about it. That, that's kind of built in. So, so in this particular sense, for us to, to get the long term right, we actually need to understand how to do conscious, sustainable evolution. And I'm using those words in a principled way. There's a specific thing that I'm pointing to here when I'm basically saying conscious, sustainable evolution, and that that basically means a kind of way of thinking about governance, which is inclusive of not just protect the land and the people, but also to help the land and the people to genuinely thrive. That's what good governance is about. So in the sense of, you know, are we doing it right? That's the metric we're in a sense coming back to, or that's essentially the way of thinking about it that we need, we essentially need to respond to. And so in this sense, what is, what is the kind of consciousness or conscientiousness that we need to create at the level of the group so that it has the wisdom to be able to handle the balance between technology and evolution itself? And literally nothing less than this is adequate. So in effect, what we're, what we're essentially describing then is essentially the absolute conditions of, or the absolute threshold of communicative capacity to essentially establish the level of wisdom necessary at the level of the group. And so what's the sense making needed to do that? What are the, what are the kinds of processes that we would want to uh, leverage as a communicative species that essentially would enable that level of wisdom to emerge and to enable that group that's engaged in that process to trust that the outcome was both the right choice and that the people that were involved in it could essentially invest resources into that and know that their, their, that their resources were wisely invested and weren't diverted uh, into some sort of capitalistic scheme to extract them to private benefit. You know, in, in effect, if people are going to engage in wise governance process, they want to have essentially a visibility to that process that essentially it, it establishes the trust within themselves that their contributions of time and effort and capital and resources of whatever kind are wisely spent and are actually going to contribute to the balance of man, machine, and nature or to uh, long-term well-being at the level of the species and at the level of the planet. And so in, in, in this particular sense, describing those architectures, you know, we could, we could simply say, first of all, we want to be sure that we are sensitive and sensitive to the world in a real way. Are we asking the right questions? Are we even paying attention? Are we, are we aware of what our values are? Can we make comparisons between the things that we think we might want to try and the actual outcomes and to see whether those outcomes are actually reflective of our values and our visions? So, you know, there's, there's a lot of intelligence and process and capability that's needed in that. So in effect, you know, one way of thinking about it is, you know, the sort of human development capacity in the sense of, are we healthy enough to, to actually communicate with one another in a way that isn't reflective of just our first circle interests, i.e. That, that there's this presupposition, particularly in the United States, that any communicative act in which I am engaged is to my personal benefit. And this is just not true. I mean, at this particular point, you know, we, we take it for granted that the things that we say are going to benefit ourselves or our friends or our family or, or you know, something that I care about in a first person sort of relationship. But ultimately, our capacity as a species to communicate, to assemble into large groups and to, to do exploration and then eventually exploitation needs to be 
to be supplanted or, or to be upgraded in the sense that we are not just creating niches and not just exploiting them, but we're actually creating health and vitality that is essentially uh, at the level of the collective and not necessarily in some sort of, you know, capturable sense the same way that socialism would describe it. So, for instance, in this, in this sort of way, I'm, I'm basically pointing at what are the solution characteristics? Right? If I'm going to outline what a solution actually looks like in this particular space, I first of all need to characterize what a solution is and also need to characterize something about what a solution is not so that we can essentially focus our efforts in a way that actually makes sense. So, you know, at, at this point, as, as, as you've already noticed, I haven't necessarily been proposing a lot. I've been proposing uh, characteristics for a solution. And then after that, I can make uh, explicit re recommendations for what the solution is. And even this isn't enough. Like, for instance, at this particular moment, I could say to you in, in perfect frankness that I, I have the answer. I know how to do this. I know how to create the capacity to create the capacity in groups of people to be able to respond to existential group situations. But knowing the answer isn't enough. Being able to imagine the answer isn't enough. Being able to somehow bring that process into actual practice. Now, that's where it gets interesting. So we're several stages away from that at this point. You know, right now, you and me having this conversation. Mostly, I'm just trying to give a sense as to what kinds of things even need to be thought about for us to even recognize that a solution is genuinely a solution and not get distracted with, you know, all of the, I don't know, probably 100,000 proposals that I've seen over the last 10 years. And so, in effect, you know, I, most of the time, if people are thinking about, you know, what to invest their time into or where to put their efforts or those kinds of things, you know, I'm, 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 I'm first of all, just asking questions along the lines of, do you have the discernment necessary? to even know what a real governance solution looks like and why to some extent we need to focus our efforts here rather than there. Cool. Good place to leave this line of conversation. We've got about 13 minutes left. Okay. Uh, or we could just cut it right here, either one. I wouldn't mind going back and talking about that scale between 16 and 200. In particular, what your thoughts are at this stage with respect to uh, what you laid out in the paper, which is the at least one extra layer where each small group creates a uh, authority to represent itself at the next level. I've done tons of modeling on this. I've, I've, I've actually played with that particular model a bunch, the groups of groups model. Do you want to talk about it, or is it not? Or is, is it a dead end as far as you're concerned? It's a dead end. It's it, it it's this this is the thing. I mean, I I I tried that and I hit a dead end, and then I tried a variation of that and I hit a dead end, and then I tried classes of that and I hit dead ends, and then I I tried altogether different things and I hit dead ends. It was it was crazy. I mean, at, at first it was just this. This has got to be able to be done, and 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 so in effect, for a while there, I really really tried. To, to essentially creep up on the Dunbar number. You know, 149 was kind of like the place where I, I basically said, okay. Interestingly, our Proto-B number. So yeah, yeah we can get the 149 or 150. I'm happy for my particular yeah. tactical need right now. Yeah, and, and the explicit number isn't so important. The, the thing that's important is that there's, a, there's an asymptote there, right? As I try to crawl up to that particular point, as I try to do any kind of design that, that goes up to that, the, the level of countervailing energy essentially climbs to infinity, and there's a variety of reasons for it. But, but basically, yeah, let's drill into let's drill into the dynamics. By the way, I'm going to just toss out the fact that a group of us have actually built a very tentative solution that seems to be working up to about 80, but it's in a very specific uh, modality, which is we have a organization called the Stanton Makerspace, which is you know, a classic makerspace, but it's a little unusual. There's no paid employees, all volunteer operated. 
And it's got about 80 members now, 80 or 90 members. And we crafted a organizational structure called the Council of Guilds, where each activity, woodworking, pottery, uh, fabric art, uh, audiovisual, carpentry, robotics, laser cutters, uh, has its own guild. And there's a mechanism to get a guild enabled or, or instantiated. And then each guild sends one representative to the Council of Guilds, which operates as the board of directors. There's also three organization-wide elected officials, a president, a vice president, and a treasurer. And they are ex officio members of the guild. They don't actually vote in the Council of Guilds, uh, but they have an executive committee, which has certain powers as well. And so far, that has worked. And reminded me a fair bit of what what would happen if you took your first level small group process and generalized it up just one additional level. Agreed. So, so first of all, I, I want to point out that I'm not suggesting that there aren't ways to basically work for a period of time or in a given situation. It's just that if we're looking for a general solution that essentially is going to act over a thousand years, um, or is essentially going to be amenable to you know all possible situations in all possible countries, then in effect, we're, we're, we're dealing with essentially a much more, you know, much more specific tractability issue. Gotcha. So let's, let's, ju- let's jump into where do you, where you see these exponential explosions that bite you in the ass between 16 and 149? Well, first of all, the guild thing that you're describing sounds wonderful. And I personally, as a, as a person that's been part of a guild, uh, would love to join something like that, and 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 I've I've got a lot of experience in the craft world, and 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 that's that's a place where my heart sings, and so I, I'll send you the the bylaws of our uh, yeah. makerspace that's literally legally instantiated as a council of guilds. Awesome, great. So so in a sense, you're you're implementing, as you said, some some sort of scale up thing that I kind of mentioned in the in the in the thing, the kind of things that go wrong usually only happen over time. So you you end up with. In, in, in any structure that essentially has uh, a hierarchical structure built into it or is fundamentally hierarchical, over time you end up with ossification type issues where, you know, the, the scope of what they're doing becomes fixed and then essentially it becomes non-adaptive to change or, or you might end up with essentially a diversion of resources or just less efficient in terms of how the group works. But, but most of these kinds of things, for the kind of organization you're talking about, it's unlikely that that kind of stuff will show up unless you have some sort of personality issues or ego thing that goes on, you know, for, for quite a while. I mean, it might be 30 years or something before, you know, any real of the kind of instabilities I'm talking about show up. But, you know, in effect, this is, on one hand, I, I don't want to be discouraging because, you know, I, I actually really love it when things like what you're talking about actually happen, particularly in a craft space and a community space and, and, and things like that. But if we're, if, we're, if we're really trying to do something which is stable and genuinely has the capacity for long-term conscious sustainable evolution, we, we, we kind of need to think in a much more profound way. So, so in that particular sense, I, I wouldn't necessarily regard uh, what you're talking about as being an exemplar of, of, of what I'm talking about, so much as it's, as you said, it's a, it's a local response to a local situation that genuinely benefits from that. And not a particularly hard one as it's turning out because yeah. it's, you know, relatively narrow piece of people's lives. The stakes are relatively low. But we move to a proto-B Every, it's some people's full life and the stakes are really high for the participants. So, you know, to get that Proto B design for 150 is really important. It's really high stakes. Well, it's, it's high stakes at the level of the individual. It's not necessarily high stakes with respect to the species. And that's what's the, one of the beauties. The whole idea of Proto Bs is that we're going to do many of them with different design parameters so we can explore the high dimensional design space of how to do this. 
Well, I, th- I think that there's, I mean, this, this goes back to the sort of maybe Tesla versus Edison argument where you can do lots and lots of experiments, invent all sorts of things. Um, and that approach certainly works well in the same sort of way that evolution works well. You try everything and you keep what works and you're very dispassionate about, you know, what sort of preferences you have. But I think one of the things that, that, that Tesla brought to that sort of debate was he's saying, well, if you understand the principles really well, if you do the math, like if you actually figure out, you know, what are the underlying dynamics of this sort of thing, then you can invent entirely new categories of technology or new categories of ways of doing things. And your experimental space may be more constrained in one sense, but it's going to be far more grounded because it's it's going into those places where uh, we much have more confidence that things are actually going to work. Yeah, let me let me clarify that I'm not thinking that proto-bees are random experiments, but rather theory, practice, theory, loops, right? And theory is incomplete, right, as you will be the first to admit. And so you take an incomplete theory, you put it to practice, you find out where it's either incomplete and or wrong, you adjust the theory, try again. And so there, that's where you get a Tesla-type experiment rather than Edison doing 10,000 different filaments until he found one that works. Well, I think that part of why I'm, I'm, I'm being careful to sort of point out the scope of, of, of the thinking about this is that the kinds of theories and the basis of those theories that are being described, like, for instance, a- anything that's going to be based upon, you know, some sort of social dynamic that makes sense on the basis of an institution or a market is, for the most part, just not going to be interesting as an experiment. I mean, it'll be interesting as a community. It might be a situation where, you know, I personally would want to live, but uh, in terms of of actually solving the hard problems facing civilization right now, I wouldn't necessarily look to that direction. So, so for instance, in, in this particular sense, you know, I, I love the proto B concept. I think that there's some some things about that that I really really like. But as far as the kind of dynamics that that I'm interested in concerned, at least as far as solving problems at the level of of civilization or the scale of of existential risk and and the big hairy audacious problems like, you know, as I said, protecting the rainforest or coral reefs or you know, how do we feed and house everybody in the world? There's there's a sense of, you know, what are the dynamics that essentially enable that level of capacity? And that doesn't really start happening until you get past, uh, well past the Dunbar number. So for instance, um, you know, if, if we need to coordinate uh, the actions of say 10,000 people with regard to the Amazon, um, and many of those are indigenous people that are coming from very, very different cultural perspectives and but have firsthand awareness as to what actually creates health in that particular bioregion. Um, then the kinds of communicative processes that we need to support that are just going to be of an entirely different order than either, um, you know, technological institutional design or tribal design, right? Tribal processes is very, very good for certain kinds of things. Obviously, uh, it has endured humanity for, you know, 100,000 years at least. But, you know, when we're, when we're looking at the relationship between evolutionary process, which tribal process is essentially a direct manifestation of, uh, versus technological process with which institutional design is a direct manifestation of. And we're saying, well, actually, we need to have wisdom and intelligence about the relationship between evolution and technology. Otherwise, you know, the, the predatory nature of people and the toxicity nature of, of, of technology just isn't properly compensated for. And so, in effect, the, the goalposts associated with solving this kind of problem are of an entirely different order than anything that, that humanity has ever attempted previously. This is, in some senses, the most difficult uh, engineering or philosophical problem that has ever been posed, posed to the species, point blank, period. 
Well, I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. The two things I want to do. One, I want to book some time with you and just work this 150 problem, see if we can come up with something interesting, even if it isn't going to last 100 years or 1,000 years, even the last 30 years, I'll, I'll, be, I'll accept it at the current time in this experimental mode. And I'll also wait until you have more to say about this 10,000 plus level, because yes, that is the big question. And yes, we do have to solve that if we're going to survive as a species and not be yet another victim of the great filter, if that's what's going on. Correct. So thanks, Forrest, for another wonderful conversation. And I look forward to continuing our talks. Awesome. Thank you very much. And I appreciate the spaciousness. And I'm looking forward to our next engagement. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.